an ongoing legal battle between Wisconsin-based electronic health record vendor Epic Systems and India-based Tata Consultancy Services, spotlighting a number of complex security and legal issues. At the center of the lawsuit, in which a federal jury recently awarded Epic $940 million in damages, are allegations by Epic that Tata consultants in India inappropriately downloaded thousands of sensitive Epic documents containing trade secrets to allegedly benefit in the development or enhancement of Tata's own competing EHR software called MedMantra. Tata is appealing the jury's decision. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with attorney Ron Rather, a partner at the law firm Troutman Sanders. Ron will be speaking to us about some of the legal and security-related questions that this case presents and some of the lessons that other organizations might learn from this saga. So now, Ron, for starters, Epic says that it learned about this unauthorized downloading of its trade secret documents from an informant. So do you think that it's possible that if Epic hadn't been tipped off, the alleged inappropriate downloading might have continued even longer with even more sensitive data being lifted? Well, it's difficult to tell since I don't have visibility into Epic's information security controls. But there are certainly techniques and practices that we have used universally to secure data and information within a company's environment that would have, I think, played a role in at least stopping the spillage of confidential information, if not detecting and allowing Epic to take more proactive measures, like, for example, filing the lawsuit against TCS. Some basic information security controls include credentialing, access rights, and segregation of data, monitoring of users' activities, so intrusion detection systems, and user audits. Any of those uh, types of controls could have been uh, helpful to Epic Um, So, for example, Epic did have some good credentialing and data segregation practices in place, at least from what I can glean from the complaint. So it had a process by which users had to sign up, and fortunately for Epic, sign a non-disclosure agreement, sign a terms of use, uh, which provided Epic really the basis for the claims in the complaint. Uh, It also uh, included segregation and different access rights, depending on whether, for example, you were an employee of their direct customer, which in that case was Kaiser, or you were a contractor through a third party. So that third party contractor, at least according to the complaint, uh, would have had access to fewer materials than the full-blown rights of a customer. What seemed to be missing is normal intrusion detection systems. So in other words, knowing that this user should only be accessing files, let's say, in folder A. So if that user for whatever reason, had access to file Boulder B, but it had no relation to what they were at that point doing for Kaiser. The system picked up the fact that they were going into Folder B. That ought to alert Epic or the company that that user had exceeded their rights or was engaging in conduct outside of what would have been expected in terms of what they were doing at that point in time. Likewise, Epic could have disabled or modified the user rights over time. It seems to me as though Epic may have just had a single set of rules that applied over time. And by that, I mean once that contractor no longer has the need for that data, you turn off their access rights, and that helps prevent some misuse. And then, obviously, the last thing you could have done is 
and I suspect that Epic may have had a right to do audits of third-party use, but you should exercise those rights. So in other words, going to TCS, asking for log data, uh, asking for other materials that could help Epic confirm that TCS had done nothing more than use the system consistent with the rights and obligations that Epic intended to grant them. Ron, with that said, do you think that Epic or even any other organization in a similar situation could have potentially done more to detect and stop this unauthorized downloading of sensitive data even before Epic was tipped off about this from an informant? Were there any sorts of indicators of compromise that you think might have been missed, for example? The fact that the compromised credentials was used to download, I think, over 7,000 documents and files. So the exfiltration of that data outside of EPIC systems could have created a red flag to indicate to EPIC that its systems were being misused. In other words, not used for a purpose consistent with the rights granted under the terms of use or the non-disclosure agreement. Certainly can't fault EPIC for not having detected that exfiltration. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I do believe that there are information security controls that we've talked about uh, and discussed with respect to personally identifiable information and preventing consumer harm that likewise could provide useful benefits to companies in protecting their trade secrets. Um, So certainly Epic, if they had been monitoring the exfiltration of of data and trying to compare that against user access rights and understanding what would normally be the conduct of that credential, they certainly could have detected that there was a misuse of their systems just based on the volumes and the types of data that was being extracted from their systems. In a situation like this, whether it's Epic or any other company, is there anything that you know these companies can do to better secure sensitive documents containing trade secrets so that somebody who has access to a web portal, for instance, can't get into a folder that's containing that trade secret information, whether it's encrypting the data or isolating it? Anything that could have stopped this from happening, do you think? Generally, the answer is no. If you have a credentialed user who gets behind the firewall, there's certainly an increased opportunity for that individual to engage in improper behavior. So in other words, they're already behind the firewall, so now what you're dependent upon is really intrusion detection type of controls and devices. Certainly, you can properly segregate the data and then limit the access rights of that credentialed user to just those data segments or or the information that's required to fulfill their function. There's still always a threat if that individual is sophisticated enough, they could hack through those protections and, and controls and exploit the more discrete vulnerabilities in the architecture or the coding of the system. That being said, if you use defense in depth in your development product lifecycle, it is much more difficult to hack through segregation controls, access right controls, and frankly, the normal user isn't going to have the level of sophistication or access to the mount, you know, to the toolkits that are going to allow them to even exploit some of the more remote vulnerabilities. So I do think that the majority of companies ought to be thinking through the data segregation and access control issues. They ought to be implementing those. Users should only have access to that level of information and that level of penetration into the system that's necessary in order for them to fulfill their specific duties. That obviously requires a different set of resources. If I'm having to customize for two people, in this case, employees and subcontractors, that takes less resources than if I'm having to customize 
access rights for a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand different people and then monitoring that that obviously requires resources as well so ultimately it's up to the company to look at the value of the data the risk to the data and then investing the level of controls that's appropriate under the circumstances so doing a basic cost-benefit analysis. Once someone is in and they have access to this information that they're not really authorized to have access to, to stop that information from flowing outside the perimeter or to a remote country even for that matter, what do you suggest? There are limits that you can put within the system. Again, those limits can be hacked around, but at least having that first level of defense is important. Again, you need to classify your data, and so depending on the level of sensitivity, uh, you may not want to implement the same set of controls across, again, a thousand different documents or files. But for the data that, or the information that the company considers to be its high-level secret sauce. We want to protect this at all costs. You should consider some of these controls. So one might be denying remote access to the documents or data. In other words, in order for me to get access to the secret sauce, I need to be in a physical facility and not be able to access the information over the Internet. Uh, and then additionally, what you can do is lock down any means by which to copy that information to an external device. So it could be removing the USB drive, I've seen companies put crazy glue in the USB port so it's not operable. A more sophisticated company might allow for the USB port to read devices but not copy to devices. What I'll tell you is that in my experience, uh, you have to have a very good set of administrative controls to make sure that those rules are applied across the entire enterprise so that there's not a laptop that, uh, for whatever reason, that read-only, no-writing rule is applied to every laptop across the company. You can certainly place other technical controls on accessibility and exfiltration of on specific files. Uh, but again, depending on the level of sophistication of the company, the cost and the administrative controls that are going to have to go along with those rules, all of that's going to factor in uniquely to each company as they make their decision as to what's the best governance model for that organization and the data that they manage and control. Epic says that the credentials of an authorized user that was working for Kaiser that was employed by Tata actually shared his credentials with at least two other people in India and that it was those two people, maybe more, that allegedly downloaded this information. Are there any steps that Epic or any other company in this kind of situation might have taken to detect that the credentials of an authorized user was being shared inappropriately with other users in a different location? So there's a couple of things that could have been done. So first of all, monitoring the IP address that's to be associated with that credential, that user ID and password. In other words, I think in this case, the contractor was expected to be in Portland, Oregon. So the IP address that that employee would be using should be an IP address that's originating from Oregon. I understand that the shared credential in this case was used by somebody over in India, which would have generated a different IP address. So in other words, the discrepancy in those IP addresses, the access via an IP address that's unexpected, for this particular user should set off red flags that the credential is being shared or misused. Likewise, multi-factor authentication is always a, a means by which to assure 
that credential sharing is not occurring. And credential sharing is not a new phenomenon. It's been around for a long time. And, and there are a number of means by which the industry and InfoSec community have tried to help circumvent credential sharing, including this IP address rule, as well as multi-factor authentication, which means not just having the password and the ID, but also maybe having a token or some other means by which to assure that the credential is only being used by somebody with authorization. How can anyone be sure that the Epic trade secrets and intellectual property allegedly downloaded was actually used in this competing EHR product? For instance, would the products have to look and act similar? And would the two companies' products coding have to be analyzed by an expert to prove that they are similar? No, I don't believe so. And in fact, when you look at, I think, the evidence that likely persuaded the trier fact in the Epic case, it really was the behavior of TCS. So having the employee initially sign up as a Kaiser representative, likely knowing that the access rules for Kaiser as a customer were different than the access rights of a third-party vendor, the sharing of the credentials uh, you know, with somebody in India, the number of documents and files downloaded, and the fact that those files had no correlation to the work that TCS was doing on behalf of Kaiser. I think all that circumstantial evidence provided a lot of influence and weight to presume that TCS was engaging in this behavior in order to trade secrets. The look and feel of the product likely is not going to be a trade secret. It depends, obviously, on whether how difficult it is to get access to the user interface, what shows up on the Internet, what would be seen by a normal Kaiser employee who's not signing this NDA. Um, so look and feel, comparison of a look and feel of two products isn't necessarily going to uh, demonstrate theft of trade secrets because a trade secret is only determined to be so under the law if the company asserting those rights has taken reasonable protections to assure the confidentiality of that information. So if it's publicly available on a user interface, there's, it's obviously not confidential. What's interesting in the context of the Epic case is that there might be certain back-end functionality that's not going to be accessible by a normal user but that the TCS employee or the Kaiser employee that's helping to train and integrate the process into the Kaiser environment uh, would have access to, and, and those might be trade secrets. So what you're really looking for is the exploitation of that back-end knowledge in a way that reveals itself in the allegedly infringing product. So in this case, comparison of the source code may or may not be of relevance. There's an interesting allegation in the complaint that the TCS employee had access to the documents that show how to decode the operation of the source code, which basically means that when software gets sent to you or me, it's actually the operational code that we see, and it's it's pretty meaningless, zeros and ones, essentially. And so it's meaningless to me or you in terms of trying to figure out how that software was written. The decoder is the means by which the source code is used to create the operational code. And so arguably, if you have access to some of the documents for the decoding operation, it would help you to reverse engineer the software application and, and maybe get some visibility into the source code. In that instance, it might be helpful to compare the source code between the two competing products uh, because oftentimes programmers tend to reuse code for efficiency purposes. So I would expect in most instances somebody that is stealing the trade secrets uh, of another company is likely to reuse that code without really any modification or certainly not in a way that's going to cover the tracks in terms of being able to match the infringed 
source code with the infringer's source code. But ultimately what you're looking for, again, is what I would term back system functionality and operations not available to the public and looking for a mirror of that functionality or, or those process and procedures in the alleged infringing product. Now, Ron, do you think that this kind of alleged theft of intellectual property via downloading of sensitive information by employees or contractors is more common than companies realize? Yes, especially when you talk about information technology. It is an art, in my opinion, writing code, and they have pride over what they've written and the code that they've used. And even with non-disclosure agreements and employment agreements that prohibit this practice, many, many software programmers will take with them code that they've written, again, because they see that as their own personal art. And frankly, it creates efficiencies for them in being able to replicate what they would consider to be common functionality. Uh, this is not a new issue. In fact, we saw it really since the emergence of open operating systems. So when I first started uh, in this space, there were proprietary operating systems that were unique to the hardware, and with the Microsoft and other operating system platforms, they opened that up to a lot of software developers. And in particular, that's when the issue of open source code came out. And, and, and if you think about the concepts of open source code, you'll see a reflection in what was happening with respect to open source code and the issue that I just mentioned with respect to programmer employees and their reuse of code that they've written even when they go and, and move to work for a competitor or another company. Um, so I think that there are lots of opportunities. Uh, that's just one example. But there are certainly others where companies may not do a good job of making certain that transitioning employees aren't able to take trade secrets with them. I've said probably 10 years ago plus and continue to repeat today that because we're still seeing examples of this today where terminated employees, their credentials, their rights to access to the systems are not immediately terminated. Certainly it's, it's less likely to happen today, but it's still happening. And that obviously is problematic if you're allowing your ex-employees to still gain access to your internal systems. So there's lots of things that companies ought to be thinking and considering in their practices and controls relative to making certain that their trade secrets are protected both internally and externally. So, Ron, with that said, what do you think is the most important lesson that other organizations can learn from this case when it comes to protecting their own intellectual property? Is there one thing that kind of stands out to you? I think the biggest lesson is to realize that information security controls need to be extended beyond just personally identifiable information, consumer information, which I think has been the focus of many organizations. It's now important to lock down your trade secrets and making certain that whatever controls that you've determined are the appropriate level for your organization are equally applied to trade secrets. I think data segregation is key. In other words, making sure that you've classified and given levels of importance to your trade secrets and for the data and information that you truly consider to be your secret sauce that you're applying, true segregation so you can lock down that using the most robust information security controls that allow your business and your company to still function properly, but likewise providing the security benefits that are needed to protect that information from being stolen or exfiltrated. Finally, Ron, is it likely that the damages that were awarded will be reduced from the $940 million that the jury awarded or recommended? And do you think this case is likely to drag out in appeal courts for a long time? What's your prediction about the outcome? That's hard for me to predict because I don't have access to certain of the 
documents that are considered confidential. So, for example, I don't know uh, what was the basis for the damages award. Is there sufficient evidence and, and proof to show that there were $240 million worth of damages resulting from the alleged breach by TCS? It does appear that the ratio of actual damages to punitive damages so roughly three to one, uh, is not too out of line with by what's uh, at least permitted by the BMW v. Gore decision out of the Supreme Court on proportionality of punitive damages to actual damages. Um, likewise, I'm, I'm unable to tell whether TCS actually has the ability to pay a $940 million award. Uh, that's often the bane for the plaintiff's attorney is that they're able to get a large award from the jury, but the defendant actually isn't able to pay. They don't have the means or the ability to pay such a large award. Uh, and oftentimes the consequence of that is uh, an appeal to keep the adversarial posturing still in place, but ultimately to allow for the, a negotiated settlement that is an amount that's actually collectible by the plaintiff and, and won't necessarily put the defendant uh, into bankruptcy. Thanks, Ron. I've been speaking to attorney Ron Rather. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.